All right, thank you students and faculty for joining us for another uh, interview with a seasoned, experienced expert. Today we have with us Dr. Arturo Munoz, who, knows, who needs no introduction. His bio with the RAND Corporation will be in the body of the podcast in the text there. Uh, so I want to dive right in uh, in talking about insurgency, counterinsurgency, guerrilla warfare, and related issues. So Arturo, I first wanted to ask you, would you uh, please describe for us maybe an example of weakening or defeating an insurrection? Well, insurgencies, you know, first of all, they can be weakened by their own mistakes uh, on different levels. It could be strategic mistakes, tactical mistakes. Um, and they can also be defeated by effective counterinsurgency. Now, a lot of times, effective counterinsurgency is quickly taking advantage of insurgent mistakes. And actually, in, in information operations and <coughs> in psychological operations, uh, one way you can gauge the effectiveness of it is how quickly, how agile you are in taking advantage of enemy mistakes. And what I have seen, you know, in Central America, back, you know, in the war in El Salvador with the guerrillas, they were actually very good about taking advantage of our mistakes, especially on a propaganda level. And that agility <clears throat> is something that helps them compensate for their weakness, because usually guerrillas are weaker than the army. Usually the army has greater firepower and, and more people, <clears throat> more personnel. The guerrillas usually have less, you know, it's asymmetrical warfare. So their ability to be agile and quickly take advantage of our mistakes is, uh, you know, one of the elements in their success or failure. And the same thing applies to us. You know, how agile are we in taking advantage of their mistakes and and pressing the advantage when when it shows up? So let me give you some examples of... Th this would be in the category of the guerrillas making mistakes. So the first example would be Sendero Luminoso. Now, they presented themselves as liberators of the Indians. And they're following a long tradition of leftist ideology that presents itself as Indianista. Indianista is actually not the same thing as, uh, as nativism. <clears throat> Indianista... It's, it's, it's not the same as, in, as you know, an indígena in Spanish is uh, a, a native. You know, it's someone, that, you know, an aboriginal, a native, or like the, the American Indians like to say, the first people. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the new phrase that I think is more commonly used now for Indians, the first people. So the leftists, 
you know, have that strain of being Indianista. But Indianista doesn't mean that you're an Indian yourself. It means, it's a big difference. You know, there's a difference between the Indians fighting for their own rights and for someone who's not an Indian fighting for Indian rights. And the problem with a lot of these leftist groups in Latin America is that the leadership, they're not Indians. The leadership are usually uh, intellectuals, university intellectuals. You know, Fidel Castro was a law student. And Che Guevara, they're, they're all from the same ilk. They're usually university people, usually middle class and usually white. It's quite unusual to have an Indian from the villages heading uh, a communist insurgency. Now, they want the Indians to join the insurgency, but they're usually not the comandantes. And that was the case with Sendero Luminoso. They're led by a bunch of intellectuals, radical leftist intellectuals, most of them white or mestizo. And the leadership was not uh, indigenous, you know, Quechua or, or Aymara. And, well, in this case, it would have been more, more Quechua because it's Peru. Um, so the reason for that whole preamble is because it helped produce the mistake that I'm going to describe right now. It helps explain why they made the mistake, which if you look at it from hindsight, you could say, well, how dumb? How can you do something so dumb? Well, it's, it has to do with your background and your mindset and who you are and where you come from. And I just kind of described it. So here's a mistake they did. They they went to the Indian villages. They were isolated Indian villages. So you can do this as, as an armed insurgent because that's one of the features of insurgency all over the world. The government doesn't have the troops to patrol all the villages. The reason you have guerrilla warfare is because there are large areas of the countryside that are not controlled even before the insurgency. I mean, that's where insurgency thrives, or at least rural guerrilla insurgency. It's places where the government has a hard time controlling, where they, where they don't patrol, where they don't have a presence. So you could have armed uh, senderistas show up in a village and give a speech and even tell the Indians what to do because of a lack of uh, uh, you know, government presence. So what they began to implement was a very radical, Maoist, uh, communist ideology that the Indian peasants didn't like. It didn't fit the, the Indian culture, it didn't fit the Indian lifestyle. But these eggheads from the university were so imbued with their communist ideology, they just couldn't accept <clears throat> that what they thought was best for the Indians is not what the Indians thought was best for the Indians. There was real arrogance there on, on the part of these leftists. So one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to demonstrate to the Indians that the current governing structure uh, is, by the way, just before I make this point, it just occurred to me, that arrogance that I just described, you know, I've seen it on the part of the counterinsurgents as well. Mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot, where the counterinsurgency officers show up from the National Army, who also are not Indians, 
who are middle class themselves, who are from a different environment, and the counterinsurgency people, they have ideas on what is best for the Indians. So you get two groups of outsiders telling the Indians what is good for you. You have the government and you have the insurgents. And usually the Indians don't like either one, but they wind up picking the one that is less bad, which is kind of like what happened in, Al- in Ambar with the Awakening Movement, but that's, that's down the line. Um, <clears throat> so getting back to Sendero Luminoso, <clears throat> they had the same idea of another guerrilla group that, that made a very similar mistake which was the Salvadorans who declared war on the economy. And they actually called it that, La Guerra Contra la Economía. I was there when they did it. And I remember thinking, that's dumb. But, and I'll tell you why, why I thought it was dumb then and why I still think it's dumb. But the getting back to Sendero Luminoso, the idea of the radical communist revolutionaries, I mean, and there are communist revolutionaries that are not so doctrinaire. I mean, they're divided. They're not all the same. But the real Maoist, fire-breathing radicals, that they want to overthrow the whole system. The whole system is wrong. The whole system is unjust. So that includes the economy. The economic system has to be totally destroyed. The land, land ownership, the way it exists now, has to be obliterated. And uh, the land landowners have to be obliterated, even though a lot of Indians would like to be landowners themselves. But the whole idea of land owning and private enterprise, that's to be elim- eliminated. You know, in peasant societies, that's actually not a, a very inspiring ideal. Um, so in order to destroy the economy, one thing that they had to destroy was efforts by the Peruvian government to make things better for the Indians, all right, which is a common feature of counterinsurgency all the time. You always got development projects, humanitarian projects, civic action projects. They regur, all right, because you're trying to get uh, win hearts and minds. So the Peruvian government, you know, was implementing some of these hearts and minds projects. And they had out there in, in this particular area, and I forgot the name of it, they had a Japanese uh, agricultural engineer, an agronomist, who was an elderly Japanese gentleman who had actually lived in Peru for years. Now, remember, these were the days when uh, Fujimori was the president of Peru, so the Japanese presence in Peru was, was not something unusual. I mean... The Japanese had a presence. But this guy was an elderly uh, Japanese agronomist, lived with the Indians, and he was teaching the Indians better farming techniques to increase their crop yields. And because he was such a nice, inoffensive old man and he was doing good works, the Indians loved him, all right? And, And he was doing demonstrably good works, you know, showing the Indians better techniques. Well, from the radical point of view, that has to be eliminated because by helping the Indians, he is helping the Indians uh, accept the ruling system, the governing system. It's a palliative. You know, it's like an aspirin. You know, it takes away the pain. You know, it alleviates suffering, but it doesn't really cure you. So... 
they kind of viewed the guy as an aspirin. Yeah, it makes the Indians feel better, but it doesn't cure the the systemic injustice of the system. And and there's the same logic that that uh, for example, you know, government officials get assassinated all the time in these uh, in these environments, and sometimes they actually don't assassinate a government official who's really corrupt, who's really brutal, because they view the guy as helpful, because he's antagonizing the local people. So they don't assassinate him. Now, if you have a government official who's, who's actually not corrupt, who's not brutal, who's actually trying to be fair, well, they'll assassinate him, all right? Because he gives credibility to the government. So the whole idea is you have to get rid of anybody who gives credibility to the government, who justifies the existing system or helps people, you know, accept or acquiesce to the existing system. So they went to this guy's, you know, you know, little hut because he lived very humilde, you know, he was very humble the way he lived. And they slit his throat. You know, in front in front of the Indians, and they gave their little radical revolutionary speech. The guy's collaborating with the uh, the government. You know, he's he he shouldn't live. So they killed him. They assassinated him publicly. They took credit. Well, the Indians were really, <laughs> they were just disgusted. And, and you know, you know, Mao said, Tong said, you know, the gorillas are the fish and the the people are the sea. Well, they just drain the ocean right there. I mean, how can you go in there and kill this guy that the Indians like because of your cockeyed, weird, Mondo Bizarro leftist ideology that the Indians don't understand and they don't want it? And and uh, so I would I would uh, cite that as an example of a guerrilla movement uh, make weakening itself. By by its own ideology and its own excesses. Mm-hmm. Um, that that I made my point clear. Is it, you got any questions? No, crystal clear. Yeah, I have a couple uh, follow up questions. Um, the first one is is more general and, and focused on advice, and I think it's really interesting how both in some cases, in this case, the insurgents can be extremely arrogant and think they know what is best for, in this case, indigenous people, for other people, for First Nation people. Um, and we also see, as you said, sometimes counterinsurgency forces may have preconceived ideas on what's best for people uh, in an area that they that the counterinsurgents are not necessarily, uh, don't know a lot about. Um, what are some, what are some ways that we can, as counterinsurgents, or as those that will be um, uh, supporting certain guerrilla efforts, what are ways that we can disavow ourselves of preconceived notions uh, before going to an area or after arriving in a certain area that maybe we're unfamiliar with? Well, well, actually, you know, that, that is a good question because, you know, I, at one time I, I wrote a, a critique of the the Salvadoran version of the of the Chuhoy program, you know, the defector program that mm-hmm. the Salvadoran government had, mm-hmm. and I and I turned it into to Colonel Steele. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows 
Colonel Steele was, but I thought he was a pretty good commander. And he was uh, the U.S. Mill Group commander in El Salvador. So I turned in my critique of the Salvadoran government program for uh, amnesty for guerrillas. And, he, and it was, you know, full of criticisms. Mm-hmm. So he read it, and he said, okay, all right, these, these are good criticisms. You know, I thought he was going to defend it, you know, because the U.S. Mill Group had been supporting this thing. And, but he wasn't defensive at all. You know, he said, okay, these are good criticisms. Now I got a second request. And he told me the following, and I've always remembered it. It's easy to criticize a project. It's really hard to write up something, how to improve it. Mm-hmm. All right? So now, now that you've given me this great criticism, why don't you write me a project with specific proposals for making it better? Mm-hmm. And not pie-in-the-sky stuff. I mean, specific things that we can implement. So go back and write me a proposal for fixing it. So I kind of view your question in that light. You know, <laughs> it's easy to criticize. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you fix it? Well, the first thing you fix it is before you show up. And actually, I'm working on other projects, and this is something that I emphasize. You ought to study the place before you get there. You ought to read about it if you can. I know a lot of times, you know, given the way deployments happen. You, you only find out, you know, maybe a week before. So I know a lot of times there's short-term deployments and, and you really can't read about it. But there should, on your own, if you can do it, read about the place. Read about the area you're going to. Because even just reading a country study is not good enough. I mean, you can read the history of Peru, and actually it's not going to help you very much if you wind up at some Indian village where the Indians have no clue as to what the history of Peru is, all right? They know the history of their people, you know, and their folk history. That's what they know, and that's what they, you know, go off of. So you could spend time reading the history of Peru, which I think would be good. It's not a waste, but if you only have limited time, you're going to an Indian village. The history of Peru is not going to help you very much. You need to know the history of that place. Why do you know that when you're in the United States? Well, it's hard to know. But you can you can look up, uh, you know, ethnographic works. You know, it's amazing what you Google. You know, I cannot believe the stuff that I found out just Google, just regular Google. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's even classified stuff <laughs> on the Internet. And it's just unbelievable what you can Google and bang, there it is. Um. So Google the place, because you may not find some study, but you may find newspaper reports. You know, and that's another thing. We tend to be prejudiced against uh, uh, the media, mm-hmm. you know, and journalists. And, yeah, they, they frequently, journalists have their acts to grind. And uh, you can't accept at face value anything you read, you know, especially on the Internet. But... They sometimes are very well informed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they actually are very accurate. So you can't always dismiss it. Oh, it's it's on Google or or Wikipedia. Oh, it's on Wikipedia. It's not true. And also, many times it isn't. Many times it's ignorant. Some sometimes it's willfully distorted. But sometimes it's very accurate. You know, you can't tell. But at least you ought to take that step. Google the place you're going to. See what you can read about it before you get there. 
So that's one thing. Once you're there, then I would suggest you emulate what anthropologists do. Because anthropologists are kind of intelligence collectors themselves. Now, they would never say that, and that's, you know, it's, you know, that's not the way they think. But there is a phrase that, that is, uh, you know, has carryover, which is a cultural informant, all right? You know, find someone who's knowledgeable about the place and, and who, who's well-versed in, in the history of the place and the culture of the place and, and who, who doesn't have some huge ax to grind that you can, you know, trust what he says, that he's not trying to, you know, turn you to accept his agenda, which, which is a human tendency wherever you go. So you always have to take into account the agenda whoever you're talking to, but it's better not talking to anybody, you know, so even keeping in mind, this guy may have his agenda, you know, maybe he's from a village or a, a sub-tribe that doesn't like the other sub-tribe down the road. That's quite common. You know, that you have different clans. The clans often don't like each other. So they'll badmouth each other. They'll say, well, the guys down the road are communists. So you have to take that into, into account. But still, you ought to make the effort to have local people explain to you you know, what, what is going on, who they are, what they want, what the problems are. And I think that's one of the, the main problems that we have is that we don't listen enough to the local people who often are quite willing to, to explain to you what they think their problems are. Uh, because they see you got money, they see you have power, they see you got a weapon. So you're a player. All right, so they don't want you to make dumb moves. So they, 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 I think often in my experience, they do give you good information, but you got to ask in a non-threatening environment too. I mean, you can't show up in a patrol like I've seen their documentaries that I've seen mm -hmm. uh, patrols in uh, in Afghanistan where the U.S. military shows up and they say hi to the villagers. And then the second question they ask is, uh, where's the Taliban? Mm -hmm. Where's Al Qaeda? Mm -hmm. Well, holy shit! You know, you're going to cause heart attacks, you know, asking that question mm -hmm. because the Taliban may be right there, standing next to the guy. It could be a Taliban guy, for all you know. So, but they do it. I mean, I've seen it. I mean, it's it's on it's on video. Where's the Taliban? Where's Al Qaeda? Um, so if, you, if you're going to act that way, you're going to get nothing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you act in a more, uh, you know, non-threatening manner, I think you, you can get uh, good information uh, that will help you avoid uh, the mistakes and, and help you avoid, you know, there's a phrase for, for what we're talking about, both on the part of the insurgents and the counterinsurgents, and that's mirror imaging. You know, that's from PSYOP, that's from information warfare. Mirror imaging means... You see the world through your own eyes. You know, you see the world, you know, the, the situation that you're dealing with through your perspective, your, your eyes. And, and that's called mirror imaging. And the first uh, way to uh, overcome that is to recognize that it is a common problem in all humans. And then the, the, the issue is there are some humans that try to overcome it. All right, they re you got to recognize the problem first. 
then then you deal with it. And it can be done. It can be done, but it requires some effort and some creativity and some, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, open-mindedness. Absolutely. That, well, that was a long-winded answer. Well, no, that's a, no, that is, I don't think so. I think that was an awesome answer because this is a question we often get at National Defense University and at our sister colleges uh, around the country. Um, this, is, this is something that we deal with all the time, and I really liked the layered approach that you provided, uh, especially with the uh, in-country recognizing mirror imaging, I think is extraordinarily important and difficult. Uh, and then being, um, I want to say, uh, uh, um, being modest enough to realize that we are all victims of mirror imaging and to recognize that problem as a first step. Uh, I think that is that is a, a sage counsel for, for everybody. And I want to follow that up with uh, any examples that you have of effective uh, government counterinsurgency. Well, yeah, I do have I do have examples. Now, do you, do you want me to go, uh, you know, the the the. Do we have a time limit on this thing? Uh, there's no time limit. I generally, you know, I, I like be, for, for folks that have, uh, for speakers like yourself that have limited time, we generally go 25 minutes. Um, but as far as for my sake and for students' sake, there is no time limit. So you, if you have some time, uh, we can keep going. Uh, how do you feel? Yeah, time. You know, like I told you before, I, I view this as part of my job. I think I should be passing this on. Uh, uh, if, if, but, but, you know, maybe you've got a time constraint, but no, if you don't, I don't No, I don't. Uh, the students don't. Yeah, I had some other uh, examples and I'll just go over it faster of, of insurgent mistakes. Okay. Uh, do, do you want me to do that? Please. Yes, please. All right. So we, we talked about the Sendero Luminoso mistake in detail, but let me go over more quickly over some of the other mistakes. So people get, a. Uh, kind of a broad view because a lot of times we you know people kind of feel like uh despair oh we can't defeat the insurgents they're out there they have popular support but no they make mistakes just we make mistakes they make mistakes and they can be defeated and uh, we can be defeated you know there's nothing set anyway so the, the other example i was going to mention is the farc the uh revolutionary armed forces of colombia you know, they had a long history. You know, they started fighting in the 60s. And they continued fighting in, up until a couple of years ago when they made a peace agreement. I mean, it was like 50 years. It's half a century of continuous insurgency. That's that's a pretty good record. You know, and they, and they established liberated areas. So when you're talking about Latin American insurgent groups, the FARC in Colombia is like one of the best examples of a, of a successful uh, revolutionary organization that did create liberated areas and then eventually did uh, negotiate uh, a settlement with the government in which they actually get some participation in the government. Having said all that, they made some serious mistakes. 
And, and it's a mistake that a lot of insurgents, the reason I bring it up is because it's a temptation that a lot of insurgent groups face. For example, the Taliban and the whole uh, drug smuggling issue. And here's the temptation. You, you need money, all right, to, to, to run an insurgency, you know, to really expand an insurgency. You need money to do anything. I mean, uh, you need money to be a missionary, all right? So to finance themselves, the shortcut was, well, let's rob a bank. Let's uh, kidnap somebody and hold them for ransom. Uh, let's extort the landowners. If you don't give us money, we'll, we'll uh, burn down your, your plantation. So they got into extortion. They got into kidnapping. Uh, to make money, to finance the revolution, bank robberies, all kinds of robberies, and then, of course, drug trafficking. Now, they weren't growing the drugs themselves, but they collaborated with the drug traffickers, all right, to make money off of drug trafficking. So what happened over the years, well, it becomes addictive, all right? And at one point, the, the, uh, the kidnappings, were just becoming a national problem because it started out as kidnapping the rich, the, the oligarchs, but then it just spread, it metastasized. So they were kidnapping little merchants, you know, little mom and pop uh, store, you know, merchant, you know, little little shops. They were getting kidnapped, and and. To they release them for you know ransom, you know, a lot less. You know, obviously, you know the they would scale the amount of ransom depending on how much money you had. But you know, kidnapping just became an epidemic, and and uh, extortion. They just they started out extorting the big landowners, and they wind up extorting everybody. So what happened was. The revolutionary organization became a criminal organization, and that has an impact. You know, they, when they were sitting there talking about revolution and liberating the people, well, the people are thinking, no, you're a bunch of bandits, you're a bunch of criminals. You know, you're not interested in liberating us, you're, you're interested in power, you're interested in money. And I really think the, the turn to crime by the FARC was one of the main reasons why why I think ultimately they they lost a lot of uh, popular support. Uh, the the people the, the the great majority of the people of Colombia just viewed them as terrorists and criminals, and and uh, they weren't going to win the revolution that way. I mean, you could fight a hundred years and still not win. Uh, so I, I would say that that was a mistake. Uh, a similar mistake was the war on the economy that the Salvadoran guerrillas. Well, this was, this this mistake by the Salvadoran guerrillas was more in keeping with the first one that I mentioned, which was their ideology, you know, driving them. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Salvadoran guerrillas actually didn't become like the FARC. They didn't make that mistake where where they became a uh, a criminal organization and a bunch of drug traffickers and kidnappers. You know, I mean, the kidnapping thing was really bad. I and mean, then, then, then the comandantes were kidnapping young women, you know, to have as concubines and all that. Everybody knew it. And then and as soon as the comandantes start doing that, they say, oh, wait a minute. 
you know, these, these guys aren't revolutionaries. They're, they're, they're just abusive uh, caudillos that, that we've always had. There's nothing special about these guys. So they, their image really went downhill. Now, the, the Salvadorans didn't do that because the Salvadorans are very conscious of their image, and they worked very hard to maintain a good image. But they went ahead and blew it anyway with their war on the economy for the same kind of thinking as Sendero Luminoso. you got to destroy the economy. So to destroy the economy, one of the things they did is they went around machine-gunning herds of cattle because they wanted to destroy the, uh, you know, the economic power of the, of the land of the elite. So they destroyed herds of cattle. Well, for a Salvadoran peasant, shooting a cow, that's worse than shooting a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, a cow is good. It gives milk. You know, a cow is an inherently good thing. It doesn't hurt anybody. And the people who take care of the cows, the landlords out there are, are there herding cows. You never see a big teniente herding cows. Whoever saw that? Who are the ones herding cows? The peasants who live in the countryside. You know, they're the ones that work the, the plantations. Now, you can say, well, they don't make very much money. Okay, they don't. But at least they're working. And they're the ones, now you kill the cows, that now even the crummy job they had before, now they got nothing. So they went from having a little to having nothing. So how does that help the poor people? And then the other thing the Salvadoran guerrillas did is destroy bridges, all right, because they're trying to destroy the economic infrastructure. Well, when was the last time, you know, that the Atenientes, you know, and depended on a bridge to do anything. These guys all live in Miami or in San Salvador City. Who's the one crossing the, over the river on a bridge? It's the local people who need to go to work, all right? And now you now you blew up the bridge, so now they have to cross on rafts and all this kind of stuff. So the point is, the Salvadoran guerrilla has created a lot of hardship for the, the poor rural people that they're supposed to be saving. And nobody's stupid in the world. Nobody's ignorant. They, 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 the, the, the poor people can see this. The peasants can see it. And they're saying, well, these guys aren't helping us. They're hurting us with their war on the economy. I mean, that's the phrase they use, like, guerra contra la economía. They, they announced it. You know, and, and that was a huge mistake on their part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, a different kind of mistake was with uh, Al-Qaeda in the Sahel when they took over Timbuktu. Again, driven by their, by their radical ideology. You know, they, they're Salafi, they're Wahhabists, so they don't believe in, in saints' shrines, and, you know, they, they're very austere. So you go to uh, Africa, and, and you go to Timbuktu, and they have all these temples and... and uh, shrines to the saints and all that kind of stuff. Now, it's all Islamic, but it's not the Islam that these people recognize, all right? So then they destroyed the shrines of the saints. They destroyed a lot of the holy sites that were revered by the Muslims of Timbuktu. And they and in so doing, they enraged the Muslims of Timbuktu to the point that when the French showed up, they were cheered. So here you have, this shows you how... Stupid Al-Qaeda was, again, because of arrogance and because of their ideology. We are the super Muslims. We are liberating the Muslims of Timbuktu. And then the Muslims of Timbuktu are liberated, cheer the French who show up to kick out the radical Salafists. That didn't work out too well. 
you know, maybe they shouldn't have been so destructive. You know, same thing as ISIS, you know, same mentality. The, the, you know, they, they destroyed all the ancient statues because that's against their idea of Islam. And the local people are thinking, why are you destroying this? This has always been there. This is part of our heritage. You know, and so the, that was a mistake on the part of al-Qaeda. And lastly, the the, solid, the radical jihadists who came from Saudi Arabia, the same kind of thinking in Afghanistan, they saw these cemeteries that, uh, that are typical of Afghanistan where they have shrines to the saints, but they also have flags. You have green flags. In fact, I've a lot of these, well, I don't say a lot, but some of the cemeteries that I saw in Afghanistan, in the mountains, they remind me very much of uh, Buddhist, mm-hmm. uh, you know, holy places where you have flags and you have different kinds of uh, religious symbolic items uh, in the cemetery, and and that's what I was reminded of. of and ironically, you know, Buddhism was strong in, in Afghanistan before Islam. That's why you have the Bamiyan statues. But it seemed to me that is what it reminded me of. Now, I thought it was kind of beautiful. I think I thought it was very impressive to see these different flags and other multicolored decorations, you know, the flags of the martyrs in the cemeteries and all that kind of stuff. Well, the Salafists showed up and they said, "Oh no, 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 no! This is your this is worship of of the dead. This is not what uh, Islam should be. You know, it's dust to dust. There should be no commemoration, no tombstones, no flags, no no altars to the saints. Oh my God, that's idolatry." So they actually knocked them down in a few cases, and then the local people uh, uh, just. Uh, became so outraged they attacked the jihadists. So here we have another case of jihadists showing up with this radical ideology that the local people uh, totally rejected, and they drove the jihadists out. So that was kind of a dumb mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know, that's fascinating. I think the idea that their actions are subverting who they claim to be. They claim to be liberators. Uh, but they are destroying, um, you know, identities and cultures uh, that have been influenced in some cases. I know in Helmand, uh, influenced uh, for, for millennia before Islam even came about. So you have these traditions that have influenced uh, their culture, their beliefs. Um, and also what's interesting in Timbuktu is reading the message boards from, you know, online from Folks in Indonesia, in Malaysia, all the way to Morocco, all the way to um, uh, you know Muslims in, in Caribbean islands, um, the outrage that here was Timbuktu at one time a intellectual and cultural center of the world uh, with some of the oldest and best libraries being destroyed. And my understanding is even today, uh, there are folks all over the world, different faiths, um, still trying to help out and locate, especially uh, some of the more precious um, books. And many of these books were written um, uh, about Islam, or their treatises and, and, and yeah, analysis. This is yeah. Islam. This yeah. is Islam. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's an excellent point. I, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, I was only focusing on the. Uh, 
the Muslims of Timbuktu. But yeah, this this had a an international uh, international impact. I mean, uh, this hurt the jihadists internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean that, that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, I I, I totally you know left that up. No, not at all. Well, and, and you know we're similar to that when the Taliban blew up the statues in Bamiyan. Yep. The, the, the Buddhists all over the world said, for Christ's sake, I mean, no pun intended, but why, <laughs> that's the wrong phrase, but why did you, why did you do that? Uh, you know, this is so un- unreasonable. There's no need to do this. You know, and it is so close-minded. Um, but they went and did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that it's interesting in, in Saudi Arabia um, in the last year, we have uh, some inter- some of our international students, uh, some folks that are going to be listening to this right now, are our, our brothers uh, who've come to us uh, from Saudi Arabia. And one of the big efforts, uh, interestingly enough, for Saudi Arabia is to open uh, many of the um, archaeological sites that are really interesting in the deserts and, and to uh, create a tourism industry around those uh, ruins and archaeological sites. Uh, so you see with Saudi Arabia a, a veneration still for the history and for certain uh, ancient civilizations that include um, uh, places of cultural and spiritual interest. So even with Saudi Arabia, you have... Uh, uh, you kind of bump up against that. That's fascinating. Thank you, sir. Um, so I was going to ask uh, my next question, which was about examples of effective government uh, counterinsurgency. Uh, anything that you wanted to talk about with that, your experiences and your studies? Uh, going off, starting with the, the first one, the Sendero Luminoso in Peru, uh, which again, you know, it's, uh, for every action, there's a reaction, you know, and then how well do you exploit the, the, the mistakes of the enemy? The, the Peruvian security services were pretty good about exploiting the, uh, mistakes of, of Sendero Luminoso. Uh, they created local defense forces in the villages so that the local Indians, you know, would have the means to resist these guerrilla bands when they showed up and, for example, wanted to kill a Japanese agronomist. And the local Indians would have the means to say, no, you're not, and we're armed. Uh, so the whole idea of local defense forces then comes into play here. And and I think the, the Peruvians uh, use that, that mechanism. The other thing they did well is they actually uh, 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 did a good job in uh, – uh, counterintelligence, uh, they did a, a good job in, in security, and they uh, tracked down the the main Senderista leader, Abimael Guzman, Abimael, Abimael, that's his name, Abimael Guzman, who was a very secretive guy, and he had a lot of prestige uh, when he was running Sendero Luminoso. And uh, they, you know, nobody could find him, and there was a few photographs of him. You know, he's kind of like Mullah Omar in in Afghanistan. There's few few photographs of him. Uh, very reclusive guy. 
And uh, so that's the way Guzman was. And there was a period when Sendero Luminoso was a very powerful uh, guerrilla organization. And they were, you know, committing terrorist acts, you know, having a big impact. So they were a real threat. So the the uh, Peruvian security services did, did a good job of just basic police work. They tracked him down. They arrested him. Okay, without the big shootout. And I think they handled his uh, detention. First of all, tracking him down was very well done. You know, just solid, good, you know, the security work. And, uh, and then they weighed, the way they apprehended him, they didn't go in their guns blazing and kill everybody in the room. No, they didn't do that because they wanted to capture him alive. Which which goes to my main point. The way they handled him, I thought was was very well done. And this this is uh, an example of, of how you do something right to weaken the insurgency. They didn't kill him. You know, had had they killed him like Che Guevara, who was actually captured by the way, then they killed him after he was captured. So then he becomes a martyr, and you know, a, a face on T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's maybe Guzman would have been like that not at a lesser level he would have been a martyr had he been killed alright mm-hmm. but he wasn't killed and what they did was they actually put him in a prison suit but a prison suit like in a cartoon a black and white you know prison suit like you see in cartoons mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's really the prison suits they wear in Peru. I don't right. know. <laughs> or, or they just did that for him. Uh-huh. But they took these pictures of him in a prison suit. And uh, Guzman actually was overweight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is not what we think of, of the revolutionary leader. Usually we think of revolutionary leaders as lean and mean, you know. and But no, he wasn't lean and mean. So he's there in this ill-fitting prison outfit behind bars. And what that picture did is, I think it destroyed the mystique of, of Guzman. You know, he's, he's no longer the, the insurgent leader that you can't find who's leading this great insurgency behind the scenes and uh, it's a gray eminence. No, he's in a prison suit behind bars. They had a trial. And they, the due process was made. He had a defense lawyer, and he was convicted, and he's put in jail. So it was a great demonstration of the security service works, the legal system works. And by the way, Guzman was not such a great guy. Look at him. He's overweight, and he's in a prison outfit, and he's behind bars. So, who are you, you know, this is your leader. This is what you're fighting for, this guy. You know, I, I think psychologically it was a very compelling operation. Uh, you got any questions on that? Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. I mean, are you answered any questions I had, which is a lot of our students have questions about how do you target a nebulous and, more importantly, a charismatic leader uh, without making him or her a martyr, uh, without, uh, you know, making them into... You know, Che Guarvo is a very, I think, um, 
colorful case study, not that he was a colorful person, he was a mass murderer, but the fact that, you know, you have uh, sweat sweatshops, sadly, in India and other places, China, um, generating Shea t-shirts to this day with, uh, oh. you know, college kids wearing it. And I think that, you know, it's one of those things that uh, especially, well, with great power competition and with countering violent extremism around the world is to be, you know, how do we target individuals without, um, you know, uh, accidentally, I should say, without growing the movement, without martyring somebody or making somebody, right. you know, the, 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 the face in perpetuity for, for a certain movement. And, and I think you've, you've answered that with uh, a very, uh, very precise and, and something, I think, uh, case study that the students will remember. Uh, I did not know that about, the, I mean, I've seen pictures of him being overweight, but I, I never thought that. I mean, I never thought through that, that you have this mystique of this individual. Uh, and then also he's given due process. Um, and, you know, so it, it's not as if the government is coming out as, you know, somebody that was like him. Um, I think that that's, that's an extraordinarily rich case study for, for our students uh, going forward. Um, I wanted to, uh, let's see, move ahead if you, if we can to, um, the importance or why and how communications are important to an insurgency, but also to those attempting to counter an insurgency. Oh, communications, I'm assuming that we're talking about you know, information operations, strategic communications, you know, we have all these different terms, psyops, right. psychological operations, meso. So the whole gamut of all these different terms we have, I'm, they're all, I assume they're all subsumed under IO and that's what we're talking about. That's correct. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So IO, sure. It's, it's crucial because you need good IO for, uh, uh, support uh, domestic and foreign, and the governments, both governments need that. You know, governments need you know counterinsurgents. You know, they you know should have foreign support and domestic support, and then so do the insurgents. They both need support, and I O is is a a, a crucial uh, me mechanism to get that support or maintain that support. Uh, you know, for example, in, in El Salvador, I mean, I thought the guerrillas in El Salvador were very resilient and that they suffered many defeats, but then they would always come out ahead because they would then come out with uh, an accusation of human rights violations, you know, against the army. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's true or not. I mean, if it's out there, you know, the, the, the Salvadoran army did some atrocity. And then that's what people talk about, and that's what then the international media looks into it, and so then and then people kind of forget about the battlefield victory that the that the army won, the defeat that the guerrillas uh, suffered, because they're all looking at the the human rights violation accusation. So <clears throat> I/O and image, I think, is very important. So examples of that. Um, there's been a lot of, of articles and a lot of literature on ISIS use of the internet mm -hmm. and Al Qaeda use of the internet. 
so I, I'm not going to uh, mention that as an example of uh, the importance of I.O. because I think it's so well known. And I assume that the, your students are well aware of how Al-Qaeda and ISIS used it. But I'm going to give a different example that, that's not well known, which is, you know, flowing along the same lines. But just to give an idea of how this works and the impact of it. And this would be Newer's letter. Newer's letter. Now, most people, you know, uh, that deal with this issue, you know, especially, you know, most Americans who are in Iraq, uh, never heard of it. Most people in Washington, D.C. never heard of it. But, but the jihadists did. And, and this was, it's really quite interesting how you have, uh, a document that's publicly available to anybody. It's on the internet. We're talking about an internet operation. Mm-hmm. So anybody in the world can log in. It's not restricted. Right. And yet the whole Western world ignored it, but the jihadist world didn't. The jihadist world focused on it. So what Noor's letter was, it's, uh, and again, we don't know if Noor's even real. And I've read, uh, you know, different, you know, reports on this. It's, some say she was real, all right? This was a real woman, and, and there's evidence to that. But then other people say, no, actually, we tried to track her down. We tried to find her, and we couldn't. So as, as far as I know, it's unclear whether or not Noor was even real, which actually is an important point to, to the whole story. She may have been real, maybe she wasn't real. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the reality doesn't matter. What matters is the operation and the effect of the operation. Because Noor's letter on the internet, what it was is she, uh, according to this document, was an Iraqi woman who was imprisoned by the Americans in Abu Ghraib during the early period where they did have women in, in Abu Ghraib as long as, as well as the men. Now there's a much smaller number of women. The, the number of men in Abu Ghraib was, was a lot larger, but there were some women. <clears throat> now when the scandal broke out, I think they quickly got, got, you know, got rid of the women. They sent them to other places or released them. I don't know, but there was a period there when there were women. And during that period, Noor was detained, and according to her letter, she was raped by the guards, by the American guards. And her letter says all the, the Iraqi women that are, that are in Abu Ghraib were raped by American guards. And her letter says <clears throat> that she has lost her honor, and she's inviting the jihadists to attack Abu Ghraib and blow it up. And she wants to be blown up along with it because she's lost her honor and she doesn't want to live anymore. So what are you waiting for, jihadists? Come and attack the place. Blow it up. All right? It's a very compelling call for jihad, you know, at the, by anybody's standard. And uh, the point is that 
there are studies that have been made and there are interviews that have been made where they interview jihadists that went to Iraq and they ask him, why'd you go? And a significant percentage of them say, because of Noor's letter. So now here's one of those rare, you know, measures of effectiveness, you know, in PSYOP, they're always talking about measures of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a pretty concrete, compelling measure of effectiveness. If you're, you know, talking to a jihadist, who, I mean, a real one who's captured, you know, in the field of battle or on the way to the field of battle, and you ask him, why are you going? Why are you, you know, uh, waging jihad in, in Iraq against the Americans? Well, Noor's letter, I read Noor's letter. And, and the Americans are raping, you know, at, uh, Iraqi women, which actually was, it's not just Noor's letter that said that. This was a theme in, in propaganda. That, uh, that, uh, Muslim women are being violated. That's a propaganda theme. All right. Which is very powerful because, uh, you know, and, and this, you can see this in, in propaganda, different wars that women are always the symbol of the, of the, of an, of an ethnic group. You know, if they're symbolized by their women. So then the enemy, uh, is always seen as the violator of the women. This is kind of cross cultural, actually. Uh, and there's other, you know, conflicts where you see the similar thing. The enemy is raping our women. So that, that, that propaganda was used. Um, and I think that kind of helped set up the credibility of, of the newer letter, uh, propaganda. And also the thing that really enhanced the credibility is when all these photographs of Abu Ghraib came out, where you see sexual abuse of male prisoners. I mean, grotesque sexual abuse of male prisoners by female soldiers. I mean, this is a horror show, and it was real. So when you have the real uh, images of the real abuse of Abu Ghraib, then it's a lot easier to slip in Noor's letter and say, well, you know, it just wasn't male Muslims that got abused in Abu Ghraib. It was also female Muslims. And even though there's no photograph of it, I think people are predisposed to believe it. So that is an example of uh, an effective use of the Internet or an effective use of propaganda to get recruits and also to get financial support for jihad against the American occupation of Iraq. Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, I mean, horrifying, but extremely uh, well illustrates, uh, I think, a very powerful and effective uh, influence or propaganda campaign, because as you were describing this, and I'm taking notes, you, you, we, there's already a precedent that there's abuse going on. There's a lot of um, echoes of abuse going on that may be exaggerated. And then you have this letter of somebody that is wants to martyr herself and wants the prison to be targeted, to be blown up with her inside. That seems like the kind of letter that would, and it did, um, go super viral all over the world immediately. And, and I just wonder, you know, why, and I remember reading 
this letter, or at least versions of it in Arabic, again, just on messaging boards, uh, on jihadist sites, but also on non-jihadist sites. And I, I wonder why it wasn't common knowledge or it wasn't um, perhaps taken as seriously as it might have um, or as it should have at the time. And I wonder if part of that is, um, you know, that, that, that there are, and nothing against any individuals here uh, in the U.S. or allied governments, but that, you know, um, th there seems to be a lot of value put on classified intelligence, and rightfully so. But there's a lot of stuff that is in the open that if you, especially if you read Arabic, that you can see happening in real time, um, that you can see has real immediate effect, like you said, for financing, for uh, 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 moral support, and for the recruitment of future generations. Uh, and I wonder why, you know, something like this wasn't taken, um, it isn't common knowledge today, I guess, is, is kind of my question. And maybe there's not an answer to that. Well, one, the, the explanation that I can think of is that, you know, having dealt with, you know, a lot of, you know, U.S., you know, military personnel, you know, served in Iraq and, and also civilians who served in Iraq, that, I mean, I think their reaction to Noor's letter is, well, that's ridiculous. We're not raping women. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know any. I, I haven't seen this. I, I don't know anything about this. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never seen it. I haven't seen it, so I don't believe it. Uh, and they just dismiss it. This is this is uh, propaganda. You know, right. and and they totally incapable of seeing it from somebody else's point of view. Mm -hmm. That no, it isn't ridiculous. And, and and they may be assuming that there's a lot of rape going on. Now, we, we assume there's none going on. Mm -hmm. And then the other people, you know, the other audience assumes, no, there's a lot going on. Because it makes sense. Because they, they put two and two together, you know, in, in their brains. You know, there's lots of images that we've seen on TV of U.S. soldiers and coalition forces, and not always just U.S., but they should say coalition forces, bursting down doors in Iraq and and doing a search of somebody's home in the middle of the night. I mean, I saw that on TV lots of times. Bursting down doors. We would do house searches. All right? So then they, and there was one period there where if you didn't find the terrorist, and there, this is in books and articles, they would actually take a female relative of the terrorist that, uh, or, or some other relative who had nothing to do, completely innocent. Mm -hmm. And that person would be detained. And the idea was the terrorist had to turn himself in. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, that's been documented, but if you have that kind of situation going on, then... It's just natural to assume, or it's not irrational to assume, well, there's all kinds of other abuses going on. Now, from our mentality is, no, there's no abuses going on. You know, we're behaving ourselves. Well, the other audience says, no, you're not behaving yourselves. And then, so how do you prove that you're behaving yourself? That's powerful. 
Yeah, the uh, l- letting facts get in the way of, of some people's perceptions and some people's truth. I think that that's uh, something that um, we, we we have mountains to to uh, to improve on, uh, mountains to climb to improve on. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I was wondering. I heard I've, I've heard you speak before about the uh, Salvadoran uh, FMLN running. Uh, I'd like to call it maybe lobbying or um, trying to raise money. So can't you know uh, finance campaigning um, in the United States? And I was wondering if you could. And this is, I guess, in the 1980s. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little to that. I mean, because that's actually uh, that's another example uh, of the use of information operations mm-hmm. uh, that had a big impact on the insurgency. You know, if we're looking at, you know, the question is how, why and how are communications important to insurgency? Well, what we're just talking about was important, but here's a different way it's important. So, what the Salvadoran guerrillas did is the FMLN. They ran a huge propaganda operation inside the United States during the 1980s, you know, throughout the war, you know, starting, I would say, right in 1980 and going all the way to the end, you know, during most of the decade. And what they did is they had, you know, let's call them front organizations, although, you know, they would dispute it that they were a front organization. So... Well, then let's not use the word front organization. Let's just use the word sympathetic organizations that were functioning in the United States. All right. And then one of them was CISPES, which is Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. CISPES. Then they had Comadres which actually was it was uh, imitating the Comadres in Argentina during the Dirty War. The Comadres, they were the mothers of the disappeared, and they would uh, protest in this, this main plaza in Buenos Aires trying to find out what happened to their relatives who had disappeared, you know, were disappeared by the Argentine military. Yeah, and most of them disappeared permanently you know they, i mean they were killed they were they were detained and tortured and killed so then they they uh but a lot of them so their their mothers and their female relatives were called comadres and they would protest in the plaza in buenos aires and the salvadorans you know took that name and took that precedent and they applied it to themselves so they had an office in Washington, D.C. Hmm. c had offices all over the United States, especially in university towns. Mm-hmm. You know, the c was very active in American universities because then, you, have, you know, you have liberal students, liberal professors. So it was, it was a uh, propitious environment, you know, who were anti-war. So it was a favorable environment. And what CSPEDs and Comadres would do is they would disseminate all kinds of uh, information and accusations against the Salvadoran Army and the Salvadoran Security Forces of them disappearing people and torturing people and, and massacres. And they just had a constant stream of accusations 
that the Salvadoran army was massacring peasants and, and so forth. Now, some of these were true. There were some human rights violations. I mean, you can't dispute the nuns. I mean, you had the U.S. ambassador who stood there when they dug up the bodies of the nuns. Yeah, they were raped and killed by the National Guard. That's actually true. All right, so the fact that you had such a uh, high-visibility, horrific crime, I mean, think about it, killing and raping nuns, well, raping and killing nuns, mm-hmm. you know, that's pretty extreme, all right? And then, and then it becomes known. And then the U.S. ambassador is there, Ambassador White, when they dig up their bodies. What a, what a tremendous impact that had on, on people's perceptions of what the National Guard in El Salvador was, you know, at that time. It was devastating. And so the, the guerrillas built off of these images. And their theme was, this is still going on. You know, this didn't end, you know, back then. You know, this continues today. Now, in reality, you know, I think the Salvadoran army got a lot better. And so did the security services. They, act, they got the message, you can't be this brutal. So I would say that their behavior improved. Now, I know there's people that would dispute that and would say that oh, their behavior never improved. Well, that's debatable, but and actually the reality doesn't matter, okay? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if they really improved. It doesn't matter if they didn't improve. What matters is their image, actually. And CISPES and Comadres were dedicated to promoting a negative image of the Salvadoran military, and I think they were successful at it. I think the the Salvadoran army never got credit for some of the improvements that it made. So bad um, in the United States, and people just wouldn't believe it. If everybody says anything good about the Salvadoran army, they would say, "No, nah, you're you know you're you're a sellout. There's something wrong with you." And and that's because the image, the, the negative image about them, is so powerful. Now, what's the result of that? That affects foreign policy. You know, that affects the uh, the decision of the United States, whether or not you're going to continue providing support to these people. I mean, that negative image has a real-life consequence in terms of money and weapons, actually. Are you there? Yeah, I'm absolutely here, and I'm, I'm taking uh, notes uh, uh, at the cyclic rate that, that's uh, very interesting and, and, and terrifying, and I think important for our students especially those uh, within the IO uh, PSYOPs communities, or I should say MISO communities, um, but also for public affairs, which is, you know, the importance of perceptions versus, you know, what the facts on the ground actually are. What I think is interesting, too, is, you know, I think back to, um, you know, my, my family growing up in Boston, and, and, you know, you go to a bar or go to a, a, a coffee shop, they pass around a hat and say, hey, this is for the families and the victims uh, in the homeland, in Ireland. And, you know, it's always about the that. victims. You know, I didn't want to interrupt you. I think he's going to talk about the Irish. Yeah. <laughs> the Irish rebellion, he's going to do that. Boston, he's going to talk about the Irish. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Go ahead. Bring it up. No, 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 that's it. It just, you know, that that the, the sales, the sale point is, uh, it's always about the victims. It's about the people. But of course, the money oftentimes gets funneled right into arms, violence, uh, etc. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, the importance of IO 
uh, with those trying to, to you know, counterinsurgency, those trying to defeat uh, an insurgency. And I know, I remember uh, attending a wedding of, of a friend of mine in Bogota right after uh, a big march down there. I forget exactly what it was called. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, again, going off of the mistakes of FARC, so here's an, an example where they took advantage of it. Now, the, the, the catalyst for it, as far as I know, actually wasn't the government, although they jumped on it, but it was actually a computer geek hmm. on the Internet. And he was inspired by the Arab Spring protests, which were organized, the beginning of them was organized by people on the Internet, mm-hmm. actually put people on the streets. You know, this was the first time that it had been so uh, systematic and dramatic that you could use the Internet to put people on the street. Uh, so inspired by the Arab Spring, which has now become Arab Winter, but... At one time, there was a lot of people thought this was going to work and you were going to get change. Anyway, inspired by that, he decided to organize, and you asked what the name of it is, he was actually imitating what he saw in the United States. He called it the Million Man March. Hmm. You know, and we had, I think, more than one Million Man March here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So he organized a Million Man March to protest FARC uh, kidnappings, mm-hmm. which which had just reached you know, at gross proportions. And he put that out on the internet and there was so much antipathy towards the FARC and towards the issue of kidnapping that the the response was just a deluge. I don't think he expected such a massive response. Well, as soon as the government saw that, they jumped on it. And then they, they when he called uh, the day of the march, government employees were let off you know, so they could attend the march. Mm-hmm. And there was other, you know, government support for this whole thing. And it was, and it wasn't just in Bogota. You know, you had the Million Man March in Bogota, but you had other cities. And this was the first time that you had a massive popular display of repudiation for the FARC openly in Colombia by thousands of citizens thousand nobody forced these people they showed up willingly now they were yeah prompted you know it was organized they didn't have to show up but they did and i think this was devastating politically to the farc to have such a huge spontaneous display of repudiation for farc kidnapping mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm pretty sure that the the uh, the evidence shows that after that uh, series of protests, the FARC decided to scale down kidnappings because mm-hmm. they could see this is really killing us politically. You know the the amount of money that we make out of uh, you know ransoms is not worth having national repudiation because. What what excuse do you have left for being a revolutionary organization if the great majority of the of the people of the country you're trying to do a revolution and obviously don't support you, then you have kind of a pointless existence. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of a huge uh, success on the part of, of the the uh, the government. Another example I would like I would like to uh, mention is the mines campaign in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. And again, this was 
You know, I mentioned earlier that the Salvadoran army improved. Well, there's a context to that, which is we had a big uh, training program with the Salvadoran army, the U.S. military. We had advisors there. All right, so think about it. You think the U.S. military advisors that are there on the ground with the Salvador military, that they're going to allow the same kind of behavior that went on before? No, they're not. They're, they're going to, they have a very clear guidance. You know, you can't violate human rights. Not, and, not, and, and we cannot countenance this. We cannot provide you with training and, and weapons and you know, the other support if you continue doing these you know, this behavior. So, I mean, there's a reason why the Salvadoran army behavior changed. You know, I'm not saying this is the only reason. I, I think the main reason is they themselves, the change wouldn't have come about if they themselves didn't see the need for it, okay? You can't have foreigners come in there and tell anybody what to do in any country, all right? So, you know, I don't want to overemphasize our role, but that's part of the picture, so in other words, you know, you know, when I say their behavior improved and I know, you know, I've got friends and colleagues who would say, no, it didn't, you know, and okay, then you go back and forth. But there's a reason for saying it improved. And, and part of it was the U.S. advisory presence that, that was totally against that kind of behavior. I think it did have an impact. So going back to that advisory presence, one of the things that the U.S. military advised the Salvadorans to do is to get rid of their large-scale sweeps when they're, you know, pursuing guerrillas, like we used to do in Vietnam, all right? So, no, don't use Vietnam-style tactics in El Salvador. There's better tactics to use, which is small unit tactics. Break up into small, into patrols, into platoons, and then chase the enemy with, you know, small numbers of troops, but all over the place, you know, constantly chase the enemy, constantly pursue the, the enemy, but not in a big sweep, you know, break down into smaller units. So the Salvadoran army did that. And it was very effective. Okay. So now the guerrillas find themselves being pursued all the time. So in order to slow down this pursuit, they came up with a strategy of the landmine, the quitapie, they called it, the foot remover. Now, the slang for it was quitapie, which means foot remover. And what it is, it's a, it's a pressure detonated landmine with just enough explosive in it to, to destroy your foot, you know, if you step on it. But it won't kill you, you know. It, that's, well, sometimes it did, you know, if a kid steps on it or you step on it the wrong way, it can kill you. But the the force of the explosion, really, it's designed to destroy your foot. And the reason they did it that way is because then, then the patrol ends because then you have to evacuate the guy. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's if, if he got killed, then you could just say, well, we'll pick him up later. But if he's still alive, then you, then you got a medevac him. So then the patrol stops. So it's it's a it's, it was an effective means to actually counteract the mobile small unit tactics that the Salvadoran army adopted that were having a very good effect. Now the problem is 
that these landmines were really primitive landmines. They're detonated. You know, sometimes they were just made with like a tin can, you know, like a fruit fruit juice can and a tin can. Mm-hmm. And you just, you just put, uh, you stuff that with, you know, powder and shrapnel. But it's just a tin can. And, and then that's what blows up. And, and, uh, and it's pressure detonated. Well, right away you can see the problem. And if you put these on the trails where you expect the Saladoran army to patrol and they're pressure detonated, there's no way of preventing the Saladoran peasants that live in the area from stepping on them. So, yeah, they, they did have a, a devastating impact on the Saladoran military. You know, and I remember going to a visit one of the cuarteles and it was really kind of depressing because, you know, there was a crew of, uh, like, uh, maintenance guys, you know, you know, taking care of the grounds, you know, picking up trash and leaves and stuff. They're all former soldiers that, you know, had been given that job by the Army just to give them some employment. But they're all missing a, a leg on, or an arm. You know, a lot of them were missing a leg. They're on crutches. And then they're, you know, picking up trash. So on the one hand, it's it's good that, you know, the Army's taking care of its own. But on the other hand, it, it just shows you how devastating that tactic was that, that employed by the guerrillas. But the, a lot of uh, innocent peasants stepped on these things. Mm-hmm. And it was so uncoordinated on the part of the guerrillas that, you know, the way the Salvadoran war worked is that each of the five guerrilla groups had its own territory, but sometimes there was uh, the overlap. And even sometimes guerrilla bands from the same guerrilla organization, they didn't always coordinate very closely with each other. You know, they're decentralized. So what happens is a guerrilla band could put landmines on a certain stretch of trail and then the other guerrillas wouldn't know where they were because, you know, these are covered. And they're on the trail. You know, the, the whole point is that you, if you're walking on that trail, you're going to step on it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you had guerrillas stepping on guerrilla landmines. You you had the soldiers stepping on them, or they're supposed to, but then a lot of the local people were stepping on them. Mm-hmm. Cows were stepping on them. Animals were stepping on them. And it was a disaster. You know, it was a real human rights disaster brought about by the guerrillas. And, and, and talk about, oh, that doesn't really gain you a lot of hearts and minds. When you put landmines on the trails where the peasants live, you think they're going to view you as liberators, and they know it's not the army. They know that. So here's an example that took advantage of it, and they were resilient and, and creative, and they jumped right on it, and they had a huge landmine campaign. And at the beginning, they made the, you know, to publicize the, the damage done by the Salvadoran guerrillas, you know, to the Salvadoran people. And they focused, right off, right off the bat, they said, you know what, we're not even going to show pictures of soldiers. Because, you know, you could say, hey, if you're a soldier, that's your job, to get killed. You know, and I mean, that's why you're, you're, you're in uniform. And that you didn't get killed, you just got your leg blown off, well, then you're lucky. All right, so no sympathy for the soldier. And even for adults, not too much sympathy. But for children, there was sympathy. So, and women. So the campaign focused on women and children who lost legs. 
And then they put up pictures of these kids all over the place in the newspapers. They had leaflets, posters on television. It was a multimedia campaign. Look at what the guerrillas are doing. And it was extremely effective to turning, uh, you know, popular resentment against the guerrillas. Uh, so that would be an example of the government, uh, you know, using I.O. very effectively to, to uh, attack the guerrillas. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I think, I think that type of effort um, our students are going to find uh, extraordinarily, I mean, well, horrifying, obviously, um, that it happened, but to take advantage of that, that level of cruelty uh, to civilians, um, and that's something that can be applied uh, in, in other theaters of war. So I, I thank you so much for that. Uh, the last question, and, and this is a big one, um, uh, is, and, and let me couch this a little bit. Our students, uh, they come to National Defense University to learn about uh, joint strategy, joint operations, uh, joint forces. Uh, but in addition to that, importantly, uh, something that we emphasize, especially in the spring, is the importance of coordinating, working with uh, uh, different agencies across the government, different departments, uh, and very importantly, with our allied governments as well, uh, whether it's in planning or it's in execution. And so I was wondering if you could provide some uh, recommendations or thoughts on ways that we can better coordinate uh, across agencies in counterinsurgency? So the first one is that we don't uh, coordinate uh, PSYOP, MISO, IO with kinetic uh, operations. Usually kinetic operations are planned, you know, independently for maximum, you know, military impact. The psychological impact of a military action, that is something that uh, is an afterthought in our way of thinking. You do it, you know, yeah, the, the PSYOP guys can be assigned, yeah, do something to, you know, take advantage of this military action that we did, but to have an integrated approach where the PSYOP people would, would plan in advance what their exploitation of a particular kinetic action would be. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't think that that is standard. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it never happens. You know, I mean, I'm not present everywhere I mean, and things change, but you know, in my own experience, you know, I remember being involved in, in military planning for a major operation, you know, because I, I was uh, detailed to the U.S. Army for two years. And one of the things that I did while detailed to the U.S. Army is I participated in the planning of a major military operation. And, and I asked, I made the same point I just made right now. You know, I mean, back then, this is years ago. And I said, well, why don't we, you know, take advantage psychologically? Why don't we plan beforehand the, the PSYOP exploitation of the kinetic part of this plan? 
And uh, they said, yeah, that's a great idea. So why don't you write the PSYOP annex? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that to me, that, that is something that I have briefed ever since then. I said, PSYOP is always an annex yeah. <laughs> to, to the military plan. <laughs> it's an annex. And, and there is, uh, you, know, it's, you know, an asymmetric warfare. You know, I, I you know, mentioned earlier in the beginning of the conversation, I thought the Salvadoran guerrillas were pretty agile. Uh, you know, pulling, you know, victory out of the jaws of defeat. Um, and one of the things that is characteristic of, of successful guerrillas is they actually will plan a kinetic action for its psychological effect. And I think that way of thinking is something alien to us. And I'll, and just to give a more recent example, let's just get away from El Salvador. That was, you know, decades ago. That was actually in the last century. (laughs) I I feel like a 19th century guy. That was in the last century. But let's talk about something more recent. How about Bagram? All right. Bagram uh, Air Base in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, it doesn't happen currently, but there was a period there where the Taliban would launch an attack on Bagram Air Base. All right. They'd launch rockets and sometimes they would even have firefights with the perimeter guards, you know, from the area surrounding the the base. You know, it's a huge perimeter around Bagram Air Base. And uh, the guerrillas, the Taliban would, would attack Bagram Air Base, which you think militarily this is insane. I mean, the center of power, of military power of, of the foreigners is Bagram Air Base. I mean, this is where we have everything. And and same thing with Kandahar Air Base. I mean, these are huge military uh, bastions. And then to have a, a small team attack it, they know they're not going to do much. They know they're not going to damage very much. Now, they shoot rockets into it. I mean, are, are you aware of what I'm talking about? I am, the, yes. The, mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, it looks insane if you look at it. from and, and see, this is my point. If you look at it from purely a military point of view, from purely a kinetic point of view, it's, it's nuts. It's irrational. They're not going to do any damage. And then a military guy who's thinking only in military terms would say, save your ammunition. Save your personnel. Why take casualties doing something that's not going to have any military impact? You know, because a lot of times when we respond, we we kill people. You know, them, you know, the Taliban takes casualties when they do these stunts. All right. So why why risk the casualties? Why waste your ammunition? All right. Why reveal your presence if you're not going to achieve anything? Mm -hmm. Because the bastion is so powerful and you don't have the means to actually affect it. That's one way of thinking. The other way of thinking is we're not trying to have a military impact. We know we're not going to have a military impact. We know you're too powerful. That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it for the headlines because we know the the world media is going to say Taliban attacked uh, the air base. The Taliban shot rockets into Bagram Air Base. And not only the international media, but the Afghans are going to know the Taliban attacked the Great Bastion. And it's all psychological. 
The whole, it's a psychological operation with missiles and, and rockets and mortars. But it's a psychological operation. That's all it is. Now, that, that way of thinking of doing a kinetic action for a psychological impact is alien to us. Uh, but if you're in asymmetric warfare, I think that we, we should, you know, have a demonstrate a, a greater uh, appreciation for it. And, and I think that we should do a, a better job of coordinating uh, kinetic actions and military operations with PSYOP and, and to understand what the impact of a military operation is going to be on a local village. You know, we, we may actually, you know, uh, achieve a great success uh, against the Taliban band operating in the area. But if you piss off the villagers, if you do an accidental bombing of a village, if now you have a whole tribe hates you, well, what have you achieved? You know, what have you really achieved? Yeah, okay, you, you killed some Taliban, you chased away some Taliban, and now the local people hate your guts because of the operation. So uh, you got to uh, ask yourself, and you know, if you read General McChrystal's counterinsurgency, ISAF commander's counterinsurgency guidance by General McChrystal, mm -hmm. I think it's fantastic. You know, I think this, this should be the standard that everybody should go by. I think that's one of the best things written because the, everything that I just said, he actually talks about these things. You know, not the way I said it, but he was very conscious of the psychological and, and information warfare dimensions of a military presence. I mean, he would even talk about the way you drive in a convoy you know, if you zoom through a village at high speed, you know, because you, you know, you want to be, you know, safe from uh, sniper fire or whatever, and then you're charging through a village at high speed, um, that is a psychological operation. That you know, one, the Americans are afraid. Two, they could, they don't care about running over a local. So, but that's in, that's in the ISAF, uh, so I recommend anybody listening, read General McChrystal, ISAF Commander's Counterinsurgency Guidance. Um, all right, so that, I made that point. Um, another, another thing about coordination, we don't coordinate civic action projects with PSYOP. You know, the, the two should be closely coordinated. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and an example that I, that I can give is in Kandahar, there was a, a, a reserve unit that rebuilt a hospital that was damaged, and uh, which, which was great. I mean, it's a great civic action, wonderful. And then I asked, uh, well, if you guys are, is there any public affairs uh, you know, publicity about this or any PSYOP publicity, any kind of publicity. And then their answer was, no, we're just, you know, we just build a thing. You know, that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's not our job. Right. You know, we're, re we're reservists, we're here. I don't know if they're engineers or something, but they're very technical guys. And no, that's not their job. And then it isn't. All right. But then I find out that nobody was publicizing it. And, you know, and I asked the PSYOP guys in Kandahar Air Base, well, are you publicizing the uh, the hospital that 
that just got rebuilt by the Civic Action Reserve guys. And they said, no, we're not authorized to even go to Kandahar City. At that time, you know, maybe it's changed or, you know, but at that particular moment, they weren't authorized. You know, they were just authorized to do PSYOP activity around the perimeter of Kandahar Air Base, you know, because there are villages, you know, around it. And that's, that's where they were authorized, but they weren't authorized. So here we, we do a good work that should be a hearts and minds thing. And then everybody you talk to about, well, what are you doing to publicize it? Well, we're not authorized. You know, it just seems to me like, well, this thing was not very well coordinated. And then, see, and my way of thinking is, what's the point of fixing the hospital if nobody knows, you know, if you're like, well, I'm sure they have some publicity. I mean, I can't believe there was no publicity. But in my mind, this should have been a big I.O. activity. Okay, this should have, from the beginning, this should have been an I.O. project. You know, you could even, even before they start building it, you can start putting out their information about that's going to happen and all the great benefits that are going to happen. Then when it happens, publicize the benefits, make sure there's media coverage, you know, or try to get maximum benefit out of this effort that you've done. And I, my impression is that all too often we don't because we're not coordinated because uh, civic action, PSYOP and public affairs don't coordinate each one does its activity separately, and there isn't an overall strategy. There isn't an overall plan, and that is one reason why we have spent billions of dollars in Afghanistan, and I think gotten so little return for it, mm-hmm. because it's an uncoordinated, incoherent effort without an overarching strategy. Yeah, I appreciate Everything that you just said, it also makes me sound, I hope my, my students are taking note uh, for Dr. Munoz's uh, insights here and his counsel and recommendations because, you know, something that uh, I say on a, on a daily basis with our students is we need to take information and effects, so psychological effects, that includes uh, everything from uh, great projects USAID are doing, civil affairs, um, it also includes public affairs. It also includes uh, our, our sisters and brothers on, on MISO teams. Um, and to bring those lines of effort out of the appendices into the core mission planning and execution. Now, of course, there will be an IO and a MISO appendix as well, and that's fine. I, I, I respect that. But what it seems like right now, because there is no, there's no precedent for what you're talking about, is it takes great leadership to do this. And one thing that you know that you have talked about, and, and you have taught me now, and in, in, in our conversations in the, in the last couple of years, is when you look at you know some com- a comment that you made towards the beginning that insurgencies are inherently weaker often. Than a uh, than either a foreign or, or a government army, and because they are weaker, in many cases, they have to be very good at psychological warfare, at narratives, at messaging, and what we find is that just like you said, very often the message is first, 
and then the actions or the deeds materialize the message. So the, the emphasis is on the psychological effects first and foremost, and then they figure out how can we materialize this and make that message more real and more impactful. So it's quite the opposite of conducting an operation or doing a, a, a wonderful project, especially by, with, and through local implementing partners or locals, and then turning around afterwards and asking, okay, what's the message now, as opposed to looking at what are the psychological and behavioral effects that we want, and then how do we get to that, and how do we coordinate, as you say, between fires, between the three shop, the operations, uh, and the planning shop, and uh, civil affairs, and then also reaching out, I think importantly, to, uh, to other organizations and agencies, whether it be the Department of State or NGOs that we're working with, uh, even informally, uh, as well as uh, USAID and, and uh, similar organization. Also, the U.S. Department of Agriculture does a number of wonderful programs around the world as well. Um, so I, I really appreciate that, you know, you underlying this. Um, I'm going to have to cut us a little bit short just because of the platform I use actually has a, uh, um, a uh, sort of a time limit for podcasts. Um, I really wish that we could talk more, and I would really love to have another uh, session like this sometime in, in the near future, uh, if you have time and if you're willing, Dr. Munoz. Oh, I, I've, this is a good ending. I mean, the, your comments there were a perfect ending. Yeah, I, I have nothing to add. I think that was, that was a perfect, perfect ending. Well, you're, you're much too kind. I, I cannot thank you enough for, for your making the time for this. Uh, I appreciate it. I know the students and the faculty are going to appreciate this. And I'll make sure that McChrystal's document, um, it has a, uh, a hyperlink um, in the body of the um, podcast. And I'll make sure that our, that, uh, uh, our faculty and students do take heed uh, to that document. I appreciate that recommendation. I appreciate the case studies, um, providing your experiences. Uh, again, sir, I can't thank you enough. And, and uh, please have a, a wonderful day. And uh, I hope you get some... Uh, some rest during the, uh, the age of COVID. Um, and, uh, I, I look forward to, uh, meeting up in person again soon. I hope. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, I, I think this is important to pass on this information and, you know, maybe things will get better. I hope so, sir. <laughs> Thank you.